Hi, I'm Courtney Brown at Emory University. Welcome to my class in science fiction and politics. Let's let me go over some of the issues of the of the writing that I wanna There's a couple things. First on writing style for these assignments. The the word jumbled has a special technical meaning for me. It's a word that I use when the topic sentence of each paragraph is not followed by other sentences that relate only to that topic sentence. Meaning it is very common for beginning writers to include a lot of different thoughts. Oh, hey, this is important too. Oh, yeah, what about this? Oh, yeah, this is also important. And to include a lot of those thoughts in a single paragraph. One of the most important ways to improve your writing is to separate all unrelated ideas into their own separate paragraphs. So that when you have a paragraph, you look at the first sentence of that paragraph and you, you say, all right, that is what this paragraph is going to be about. And then you actually give a test. You look at each sentence that happens after that sentence and say, am I still talking about that first sentence? Now, if you're talking about something else, which always happens with writers, hit the, hit the enter button, start a new paragraph, cut and paste, you have more to write about. That means you have another thought. So what you're doing is when you have a lot of thoughts of in one paragraph, what you're really doing is saying you have a lot of things you want to write about and you're giving short shrift to some of the things you do want to write about. So when you're writing, if you ever see the word jumbled, a big bracket around a paragraph, a jumbled, it means there's a whole bunch of potentially really good ideas in that paragraph and you're not giving each one the light of day. You're throwing them all together and you can't you can't uh, let each one have its own moment of glory, have its own moment of important impact. Strong writing has single coherent ideas in each paragraph that really punch home, that really make a difference. As soon as you start mixing ideas in a single paragraph, you dilute the strength of that paragraph. It's like a boxer. Every single punch is one thing and one thing only. If you mix two or three punches and a kick all together, the person will lose. You have to actually do one thing at a time. So each paragraph, make that topic sentence be the, the king of that paragraph, the, the criterion for evaluating all future sentences. Now that doesn't mean to delete the stuff that you have. It means to separate the stuff you have so that if there's no I other ideas in that paragraph, it doesn't mean we're getting rid of your ideas. Just take them out of that paragraph and put them in their own paragraph. Give it a topic sentence worthy of it. If you have an idea and you think it's worth talking about, give it a paragraph. Jumbled is very, very important. When you see the jumbled statement, it means, hey, you're saying good ideas, but there's just too many of them all in one pot. Separate them out into their own paragraphs. Secondly, when you're talking about the novels, talk about the novels. You're trying to explain the novels to other people who sometimes have not seen the novels and then to make the political implications first. So you don't want to talk about politics for one whole page before you get into the novel. You want to start out with the novel, get right into the novel, explain so-and-so has written a book that is crucially important to understanding contemporary society and I think you should understand why. You'd use different words than that, but that's the basic idea. You have to open up with the book. So don't make it an essay about politics and, oh yeah, by the way, Asimov wrote a book that sort of says something about this. You want to have the book up front and say, look folks, we got a really screwed up world, there's reasons for it, Asimov tells us about why. Let me tell you what Asimov is saying about this. Right up there in the first paragraph. So get the book way up front. The other thing is, all of these books, the great thing about science fiction is there is a science fiction component in science fiction. That's why it is science fiction. Now, it's easy to identify the technology component of science fiction. Okay, you're dealing with stellar drives, you're dealing with force fields, you're dealing with laser guns or whatever. But science fiction has a social component, which is what we're studying here. The social component of science fiction. So, 
what you have to identify is what is that science fiction component, the social science fiction component. Now, with with Asimov's to Foundation trilogies, what was that component? It was the develop in in another science fiction book. It could the the science fiction component could have been time dilation or time travel or or interstellar travel or whatever. In Asimov's Foundation trilogies, the science fiction component was the development of the science of psychohistory. That was the reason for the books. The development of psychohistory, how you could develop a, a, a science of predicting societies, the outcomes of societies far into the future and what would be required. <coughs> An adjusting mechanism coming out of the second foundation as well as the mathematical stuff dealing with data all the complexities involved, how difficult that science actually was. So identify the science component of the, the social component of the science fiction. So when you talk about it, try not to think just of mundane aspects. Try to think, what is really out there? Okay, he's commenting about corruption. Corruption's bad. You can read about that anywhere. What is the science, com- the science fiction component of, this, of the social stuff? So try to identify that and put that out there. Why is it important to identify the science fiction, the social science fiction component of each one of these novels? That's where you're going to change things. Go ahead, go ahead. What do you mean by social science fiction? Well, let's look at Asimov's stuff. What was the social science fiction component? Psychohistory, development of psychohistory. In a technical science fiction book, it could have been a, a star drive, interstellar travel, or the concept of black holes, or the concept of time dilation or time travel. In Asimov's book, the reason for those books, the social science fiction component was psychohistory, the development of that science, something that had never been done before. Okay, Time dilation, time travel, <coughs> interstellar drives, black holes, things that had never been done before. Okay, Psychohistory. It's social, it's science fiction, it had never been done before. Now people are starting to put together the pieces that would be necessary to make a science of psychohistory, both on the mathematical side and elsewhere. So you see, does it make sense? Does, it, does that make sense? So when you read a book, say, what is the science fiction component of this? And that's what you want to talk about. You don't want to you don't you don't want to boil these novels down into the most mundane components that are typical of anything you'd read in the local newspaper. So you kind of want them like general. Pardon me? Like general topic and then go into detail about that general topic? Is that basically... Well, you can. The, the idea is the first thing you want to do is to identify what that science fiction, the social component of the science fiction thing is. You want to be able to bring it to people's attention. This isn't about... Asimov's book isn't about you know, interstellar travel. It's about the development of a new field of social science, psychohistory. And what that would entail, what that would mean, what that means to <coughs> us, what that means to contemporary society. That's why you're acting like a Thomas Friedman or a Nicola, or a Nicholas Kristof or a Paul Krugman. You, what you're doing is you're you're taking you're making an opinion piece, okay, from the perspective of something that other people haven't thought of. You're trying to bring a new element in their thinking. And that's what science fiction does. It enters a new element, and then you say, "What is that new element?" Okay, now I'm going to put myself in the professor, uh, in the in the position of the professor, in the position of someone who's teaching somebody else what that new element is. So you have to identify that new element, and in your piece, explain why it's relevant to us, to society, why we should care about the history of psych, why should we, why we should care about the science of psychohistory. So you have to describe it, explain more about it, and then relate it to contemporary stuff. I mean, if you think about it, contemporary stuff is everywhere. We have chaos in our world right now. Wars breaking apart, the world order coming undone. (coughs) We have the proliferation of nuclear weapons, North Korea, now it's going to be... We just had recently India and Pakistan duke it out with nuclear weapons that they were detonating just to scare each other on their own territories. Okay, now we have nuclear weapons in Korea. We're soon going to have nuclear weapons in Iran. And then what are we going to do? I mean, it's nuclear proliferation. 
What did Thomas Friedman point out the other day? You cannot have nuclear weapons in Iran without also having nuclear weapons in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and all those other places. It's just the beginning. Iran is dominated by what ethnic group? What religion? Muslims. Pardon me? Muslims. No, no. What sect of, what sect uh, of religion? The Shiites. The Shiites. So, uh, Saudi Arabia is dominated by what religion? Sunni. The Sunni side of Islam. <laughs> Do those two sides get along? <coughs> now, does Saudi Arabia have any money problems? No. Are they going to sit around with Iran being a nuclear power right there, right next to them? And thus being able to intimidate the entire Islamic population or any population. They'll have nuclear weapons in a flash. So, and now think about that. Saudi Arabia added to the nuclear family of nuclear weapons after Iran does it. Well, what do you think Egypt is going to sit there with? Do you think, wasn't Egypt always the crown of Arab population for the longest time? Do you think it's going to be suddenly thrown into being a backwater like New Jersey? So that New York is it? And then, oh yeah, and then there's Jersey over there? Okay, now it's Saudi Arabia and Iran are it. Oh, and by the way, that's Egypt over here. Don't worry about it. How long will it be before Egypt starts up its own nuclear program? You'll get proliferation. So you're going to have an entire Middle East that's nuclear arms. Okay, so you see the, the, the social order is slowly coming undone. And so what is Asimov talking about that? What you're talking about is the end of what we now know. And he's saying, well, when you have the potential for tremendous chaos, and by the way, those governments are not, are not democratic, nor are they going to be long-lasting. They're going to be, I mean, how long is it going to be before the monarchy of Saudi Arabia falls? And there's no other institutions that have been developed in Saudi Arabia except the mosque. So it's going to, as Thomas Friedman told us in one of his opinion pieces, it's going to devolve down to the mosque. So, But some of that's self-limiting. Like in Egypt, they're not going to bite the hand that feeds them. I mean, tourism is so much of that country. And if they start nuclear proliferation, they're going to kill tourism immediately. People, like, have the oh. idealized dream of Egypt. Like, it's a really nice place and everything. So unless it gets to a dangerous level, people will still go there. Like... People will go to a country where they know that kidnappings and terrorist things happen unless the government issues a warning saying, okay, this country is getting way too dangerous now. Well, I mean, it's like, I mean, it's like Israel. I mean, you know, that's a da- well, some parts of Israel are dangerous places to go, but people still do it, but there's like a religious reason. There's not like a religious reason people go to Egypt. Well, I mean, most people. I, I, take, I, take, I take issue with that. An enormous number of people go to Egypt. For reasons, I mean, I went to Egypt. I, 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 Egypt was I a spectacular too, place to be, yeah. and I, you know, and I'm, I, I went there with a Peace Corps friend of mine who was a Palestinian American. We went traipsing through all over all over Egypt, and uh, used our African learned skills of how to navigate to go through the slums of, of of Cairo. I mean, that means like you enter one side, and you just know that sometime later on the day, six or seven hours from now, you're going to emerge over there. And you have to navigate by the side <coughs> because there's no street signs and everything, and all the kids come around you shout. And you have to look like you know what you're doing, so the so the Islamic, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood doesn't come out and fuck <laughs> you. Uh, and so, and you had to come out six, seven hours later. You come out on the other side, and you know it's it's quite risky to do something like that if you don't if you look like a tourist. I mean, you're dead. But the point is that uh, um, a lot of people go to Egypt, and I think they will always go to Egypt. I, I, I met an awful lot of people from all over the all over the world that were in Egypt for as, as long as they're not going to be threatened as long as it's like not turning into Lebanon during the time when it was really everybody was being kidnapped but I mean if they end up in like a India Pakistan sort of like let's detonate new te- I mean let's have new tests uncharted territory we don't know and they have the whole Sinai Desert and so people still go to India on holiday because it's such a nice place, even with the threat that Pakistan and India hate one of the positive nukes. There's neither of them are going to push the nuke button off just off the bat because they're right next to one, so the repercussions are there for them as well. So only yeah. if they get pushed, and there's going to be plenty of warning for that to happen and get out. 
But there's an interesting debate here going between, between both of you, between Jason and Adol. It's very interesting. What you're saying is, that stuff is possible. And what you're saying is, it's unlikely. Don't worry about it. Now think of what happened in Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. You had one group of people saying, what do you mean our, our, our future is threatened? Everything's fine. The galaxy is as we all know it. And Asimov, through Harry Seldon, was saying, no, it's not. This whole place is going to come tumbling down. And so they had people arguing both sides, meaning there's evidence of stability and evidence of instability at the same time. And that's why you can't tell the difference. You can't tell where things are going to go. It's uncharted territory. That was the nature of psychohistory. You're predicting things that other people couldn't sort out very easily. And that's the nature. That's the psychohistorian component. What I'm really saying here is that we have the potential, not the absolute certainty. Remember he was always dealing probabilistically with psychohistory? We have the potential for our world order to unravel. And if it does unravel, what are we going to do about it? Now, with psychohistory, we could say, well, look, proliferation of nuclear weapons is inevitable. And a lot of people in the military intelligence are saying the detonation of a terrorist nuclear weapon is also inevitable. They say it will eventually happen somewhere. So the real question is, what happens when that happens? Now, you're saying things wouldn't happen things might be a little stable. What would be the American reaction to a terrorist nuclear weapon? Depends where it was. Almost anywhere. Well, I mean, I think if it was in the United States, it would obviously be... Anywhere in the world, the same reaction, because it means that terrorists could bring a nuke into the U.S. Oh, oh I, I realize that, but I think in terms of, like, the chaos following a terrorist nuke, yes. if it were in Europe, it would destabilize the world order a lot more. Because I think that in the U.S., if it were detonated in the U.S., we could look at it the same way we looked at September 11th as an internal event. Yeah. Uh, wait a second, did we look at it as an internal event? What did we do immediately after it? Well, I know, but I mean, I think that... I think that uh, it was an internal event, Jason. Like, you saw what happened. In the afternoon of September 11th, right. America was like a, the sleeping giant. It woke up and it was angry. The entire war on terror, the invasion of Iraq, Afghanistan, the work on Iran now, it all happened because America woke up because they saw it was now no longer like invulnerable if people could hurt it. So they went and now they started to get more involved in world affairs, trying to settle everything down so it doesn't happen to them again. If a nuke, which is hugely more destructive than a plane, right. like a plane destroyed one building, like a monumental building, but still a building, a nuke could level the entire city. Right. And that would... It wouldn't be good as an internal event. America would, like the government, the people, they'd freak out whatever in the world that happened. Rachel, you were going to say something too? Yeah. I, I was just saying that it, I didn't feel that it was necessarily internal. Like, the immediate, our reaction immediately, whether, I mean, whether you were really in power or not, was let's go like bomb whoever did this to us. Like somebody's got to pay. Everybody's reaction. If somebody hurts you, you want to hurt somebody's got to pay. Well, it's just it a human reaction. Didn't yeah. phrase that correctly. I, I meant that if a nuke were detonated here, the U.S. would start outwardly seeking a, 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 an outlet for its vengeance. I guess. I feel like if a nuke were detonated in Europe you would have a much greater coalescence of international presence into a new form of government as opposed to if it was detonated in the U.S. U.S. Well, is let a me big power on the block, so detonating in the U.S. means a greater like, shake-up in the international community. Mm. Europe, you, if you targeted, say, France, then the EU would, like... Well, right, that's what I was thinking. Like the UN, the EU, it's closer to home. Well, I mean, the UN obviously is in New York. But I mean, like the EU is closer to home with the majority. I mean, the US, while maybe a majority power, is only one. Exactly. And if you detonate it in Europe. They can do it. Okay. None of the European nations have the mil- like combined the military capability. It well, doesn't really. Like right, but I mean, uh, but I mean, I just think in terms of 
galvanizing them into action. If you detonate a nuke in Europe, you're talking about fallout all across Europe. If you detonate it in the U.S. Europe is as divided as anywhere else. The EU is like a unifying statement with no threats, with no anything. Eventually it could unify Europe into one government. But a one power, one closer. But at the moment they're still hugely different. The Brits don't like the French very much. The French don't like the Brits. The Germans... Actually, no, the Germans like everybody and try to get everybody to like them. That's the interesting thing about the Germans. Ever since World War II, the, the German... There was a joke. They're saying, what's the difference between if you put two Germans in a room and two Americans in the room? Well, the two Germans will meet in the middle of the room and try to come up with a strategy for how to make everyone like them. The two, Ger- the two Americans, on the other hand, you put them in the room, they'll go to opposite corners and try to figure out how to sue each other. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> Okay, but no, wait a second. Let me let me enter a new element. The new element here is what you don't see when a crisis occurs. What do we know from our current government once the once the nine one one thing happened? They, place, they put in place an entire new infrastructure. A new infrastructure, the Patriot Act, everything. They decided on invading Iraq, apparently even before they decided on invading Afghanistan, meaning they knew the enemy was in Afghanistan, but they really wanted Iraq because that was the oil. And apparently they said, well, we have to come up with a reason for invading Iraq. We need the oil. Well, we're going to connect them to Osama bin Laden and the terrorist stuff. And how about weapons of mass destruction? We'll throw that in for good measure. And then, they'll then okay, the public is going to insist that we go over and beat up the Taliban because that happens to be where uh, Osama bin Laden is. But let's not spend too much time there. Let's immediately jump into Iraq and grab the oil. And we're never going to have another opportunity like this again. A whole infrastructure then brought out. A whole publicity campaign came out. Everyone talking about it, linking it all together. Meaning there was stuff going on, and it's only now that we're hearing about all of this. And what we're seeing, however, that is a tremendous amount of stuff went behind the scenes to manipulate the public. Now, if there's a terrorist nuclear wreck, uh, nuclear uh, event, don't you think what you don't see would be even more fundamental than what happened? The Patriot Act would be milk toast compared to what would happen because the people that own money the people that really control power look at the United States US New York Times today uh, Tuesday February 14th US royalty plan to, to give windfall to oil companies the oil companies now have larger windfall profits because of the increase in oil profits than anything they're their, their, their profits this year are low, larger than the gross national product. For one company, it's larger than the gross national product of Saudi Arabia. I mean, it's, they've earned so much money recently. And now, what is our Congress doing? U.S. royalty plan to give a new windfall to oil companies. Who owns this government? The government's been bought and paid for. And well, there's a they can't do anything in the face of OPEC. It's like an international cartel. I mean, and they're making it stay that way. They have money. They want to control that money. Now, what if there's a terrorist nuclear event? What does that do to all the people that really have power? I'm not talking about voters, folks. I'm talking about the people that really have power. The people who bought and <coughs> you know who bought and own the Congress. They all go see shrinks because they feel lost. I, I mean. They're going to act. Well, they're going to act. Those people are going to act. You think they're going to act? I was thinking they were going to be freaked out. They're going to be freaked out, and they're going to sit down and be and behind closed doors. They're going to do something. And the one thing they're going to say is, we don't give a squat about civil liberties. What we control is money. We give a squat about money. We want the control of where that money goes, and we cannot exist in a situation in which terrorism is disrupting the flow of goods. Well, I, I'll tell you what I think would happen if there were a terrorist attack somewhere. I think one of the first things that would happen is that all of a sudden there would be a lot of oil rigs in Alaska and off the coast of Florida. Because I think that people know... But you're acting so rational about it. The reality is we could solve our energy problems just by an active, a really active set of programs towards conservation and development of alternative energy. We're not doing that. On purpose, we're not doing that. The people that control the real money don't want those new technologies out there yet. Well, some of them are all in favor of electric cars because electric cars are just as polluting as other cars. 
because the well, electricity comes from a coal oil power yeah, plant. But that's a whole other issue. The electric car is a real problem. I mean, I, I'm in big favor in terms of that, that type of technology. But oh, I am too. I'm the reality is they haven't solved the battery problem. The batteries cost 8000 bucks a shot, and they yeah. only last for a few years. And you've got to throw them out, put a new ones in. You know how long rechargeable batteries last? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? They're doing work on hydrogen cells. Not I'm sorry, say it again. They're doing work on the hydrogen cells, which is... Yeah, but this is not the Manhattan Project. When they're saying they're working on it, they're fiddling with it. There's no Manhattan Project saying we have got to solve this problem. But then there are some companies that, like, I don't know, I saw an ad for, a, I think it was either GM or GMC the other day, that now has these, uh, like, if you go buy a new Yukon, they have uh, flex fuel cars, and it'll run on, yes. like, 80, up to 85% ethanol. Yeah, actually, you oh, can yeah. have a... Yeah. You can have a car that gets over 400 miles to a gallon. That's a documented fact. Thomas Friedman re- wrote about it, in fact. You have to have it a, a flex fuel so it can use ethanol, but you also have to have a larger battery so that it can run mostly just a pl- and plug-in so that it can it can be both a hybrid, runs off gas, ethanol, as well as plug it in, and you end up you end up being able to run without any gas for the first 50 miles, which means two-thirds if you're driving around town, you don't use any gas. You plug it in and so on. But all of that stuff, all of that stuff is moot because look what happened during the Jimmy Carter period. The Jimmy Carter period introduced a whole new alternate energy program. He said it was the moral equivalent of war. He came up, this is the 1970s, he came up with a brand new huge thing on, on alternate energy. Tax waivers, tax grants, investment opportunities, and what you saw was the springing up of wind power, for example, out in, off between Sacramento and, 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 and San Francisco. You had these wind farms starting. They're starting to happen elsewhere on the planet now, too, of course. Wind is, is, the new, is a new energy. But in the 1970s, it was a brand new thing. And they were coming up with new technology to deal with it. For example, they used to have the winds, the, the, the turbines way up at the very top, and the generators used to be at the top of these towers with big propellers. They've actually gone back to that design somewhat, but one of the things they found out was you had to then turn the motor and the propellers in the direction of the wind. So you had to have a computer controller up there that would turn the whole big device, and that was braking rain would get into it, cold and other things would just fall apart. Having a motor up on a stick was the difficult thing. And then they discovered that you could also make a turbine by making it like a toilet paper tube, vertical on the ground, but having slits in it that are built, that are, that are angled so that when the wind hit it from any direction, it would spin vertically. And so you could have your engine then inside a cement casing on the ground, perfectly con- you know, perfectly protected from the, from the elements. Well, that was a technological development. They had to first try the engine on a stick, and then they came up with these new things. What happened during the Jimmy Carter period and a few years afterwards is that there was a huge exponential drop in the cost of alternative forms of energy because of this research and development. What happened when Ronald Reagan came in, heavily financed by the oil industry, he campaigned with the idea of eliminating the new energy department that Jimmy Carter created, eliminating it. He said what they don't want is any infrastructure out there that could that could invest in this new technology and make oil competitive with other things so that you'd have alternative forms of energy taking away the money of the people who really had control of things in the energy industry. And so what is they they ripped now they didn't get rid of the energy department. What they did is they managed to convert it into a department that promoted uh, carbon-based fuels, oil, coal, and even some nu- and even nuclear. But what they did is they took away almost all funding, almost not all, but almost all funding. Proportionally it was it was equivalent to all funding, but they still had a little funding for alternative. But they, they stripped out almost all funding for alternative forms of energy by the roots. They got the bills out. They eradicated it. They pulled out the programs. Everything stopped within a few years. And so you stopped that, that growth of alternative forms of energy, which was driving the price of fuel cells, photoelectric cells, 
driving the price of wind energy way down to the point where in a few years only it was going to become, become competitive with oil. And they said, that must stop now. We can't let that happen yet. And then when they did want it to happen, some decades into the future, of course, it was the energy companies who were supposed to then transfer their assets into that new technology so the basic people who have the money can, can still control the money. You never hear about this in the public. You have to be an expert in and follow closely environmental politics to actually follow the machinations person by person, bill by bill, policy by policy that actually went on. If there's a terrorist nuclear event, these people who do things that you don't hear about will sit and they will say, what is the big stakes going on? And so really what we're talking about is the control of society. And that actually gets us into the uh, Aldous Huxley thing. I just wanted to raise the issue that for you to think about what is the social scientific component and what would happen. And in Asimov, he was talking about what would happen when there's going to be a collapse, the prediction of a collapse. Now, with Aldous Huxley's book, we're talking about a different approach to that. Asimov was talking about it in a benign way. What did he actually do? Develop a new foundation, both a primary foundation and a second foundation, to bring about a a galactic civilization that was better than the first one. Boy, that would be great. Cool. Nice. But is that real? The The psychohistory component may be real, but is that really the way real politics works? Aldous Huxley's view is different. Not better, not more accurate, not worse, not whatever. It's just different. And here you get something totally different. And, you know, let, let's switch now over to Aldous Huxley, because we could really go on. Before we go on, I want to read you an editorial so we can compare what's going on. This is an editorial in today's New York Times. Okay, this is February 14th. 2006. And the White House shoots foot, it is called. Let's see. The vice president of the United States accidentally shot someone while bird hunting on a Texas ranch. Now, believe it or not, you're going to find that this has some relevance to Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Let's see. What's that? Okay. It took the White House nearly 24 24 hours to share that information with the rest of the nation because Dick Cheney thought it would be better for the ranch's owner to give the story to the local newspaper first. And, by the way, it was all the victim's fault. That's their story, and they're sticking with it. Mr. Cheney was a weekend guest at a ranch owned by Catherine Armstrong, a lobbyist whose family has long-standing ties with the Texas Republican Party and the Bush White House. Mr. Cheney, who is proud of his reputation as an outdoorsman, was gunning for quail when, according to Ms. Armstrong, a 78-year-old lawyer named Henry Whittington got between the vice president and the bird. Mr. Cheney pulled the trigger for getting one of the National Rifle Association's top rules for gun safety. Quote, Be absolutely sure you have identified your target beyond any doubt. Equally important, be aware of the area beyond your target. Unquote. Mr. Whittington was sprayed with birdshot. Fortunately, Mr. Cheney travels with his own medical team. The vice president suffers from heart problems, although the full details of his physical condition are secret. Nevertheless, according to the White House, Mr. Cheney was so busy attending to Mr. Whittington that he was unable to inform even President Bush about what had happened for a very long time. His retinue, usually bristling with cell phones, pagers, blackberries, and satellite phones, was also oddly incommunicado. The rest of the world might have been in the dark forever if Ms. Armstrong had not chosen to share the news with a reporter from the paper in Corpus Christi. The White House press secretary, Scott McClellan, tried to spin this as a communication strategy. The vice president of the United States, he explained, designed a private, designated a private citizen and a lobbyist for a Texas engineering company to go out there and provide the information to the public. As a result, what might have been a one-day gag on late-night TV is now a running story and an excellent reminder that this administration never met a fact that it didn't want to suppress. The last time Mr. Cheney made news while hunting 
was when he secretly invited Justice Antonin Scalia to go shooting right after the Supreme Court had agreed to decide whether Mr. Cheney could keep the membership of his energy task force secret. The vice president appears to have behaved like a teenager who thinks that if he keeps quiet about the wreck, no one will notice that the family's car is missing its right door. The administration's communications department has proved that its skills at actually communicating are so rusty it can't get a minor police blotter story straight. And the White House, in trying to cover up the cover-up, has once again demonstrated that it would rather look inept than open. Now you tell me, what is the connection between this and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World? Kelsey, you haven't, you haven't said anything. Why don't you give it a shot? Okay. <clears throat> Go ahead, Edel. The director, he when You're talking about Mustafa Mond? No. The director. The director oh, the director. So he's the one who went out with Linda to the reserve. When she got lost, like, he spent ages trying to find her. And the whole thing was like hushed up that a yes. Peter had been lost in this place. And when she came back, they like pushed, like covered her up, pushed her out of the way. That was a messy pregnancy problem. That's exactly right. They had to hush that up. That's true. That was a fact that was very comparable to the stuff that was going on. Something happened that was unseemly given the rules of society. But what else do we know about the rules of this brave new world? What was so unusual about John Savage? What was the one thing he knew? He was born. He was born to begin with. But what was also the one subject matter he knew? Shakespeare. Shakespeare. He knew Shakespeare. That got so thick towards so, the end of the book. No, I liked it. You liked, I liked it? I liked the compare. Well, I, I like Shakespeare. I thought it was interesting because The Tempest is like a direct relation to the book itself. Yeah. <clears throat> and it's so great, actually, when he goes screaming about a strumpet. No one uses the word strumpet anymore. Yeah. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting comparison. Well, what is the thing about... Shakespeare. Why is it so unusual for him to know Shakespeare and for him to... Because no one knows it. It's like a suppressed book. Talk about that. Go ahead. Well, in the whole, like, culture of the new world or whatever, um, they can't read or, or do anything like that. And all, like, the emotions that Shakespeare bring out, they don't understand. So that's why they can't read the books, because it has all these things that the government doesn't want them to feel. And instead, they replace it with the soma, basically. Yeah, they get sedated with this soma, and so they don't. The government doesn't want them to feel peak emotions, as you say, and these ideas bring out these emotions. Uh, say more about this. Go ahead, I think. I think um, there's a comparison with 1984 because, like in that book, the government suppresses all the people. They have no freedom. They don't do anything. But in this book, it's like. So just you're, you're everyone is happy. Just don't complain. Just live your life. Don't do anything meaningful. Just you know. So it's like same thing. There's like, just don't worry. Just have this superficial soma happiness, and you know you'll be all right. What does this get to? This idea of soma happiness. Be happy. Plan the sex. Plan the drugs. Plan the happiness. And what about the books? What happened to the books? All the books. They're in a safe. Maybe remember. Doesn't he read it still? Pardon me. Doesn't the guy read it? Oh, yeah, someone has his own secret. They were talking Sorry. about it, like together. Yeah, he reads them and keeps <coughs> them secret and locks them up in the safe. And what happened when a few of it, when the few people near the end started to inquire too much? They got shipped off to penal colony. Yeah. They got exiled. But kind of like the book. The Shakespeare book because they got exiled to an island in the Tempest. Yes, interesting. Very much like the Shakespeare. Um, go ahead. I I just have a question. Uh, if Mustafa Mond was reading all these books, and if he'd already been threatened with exile when he was young for like seditious ideas, um, or maybe seditious isn't the right word, but for having ideas that went counter to the grain, uh, 
why would they put him in controllership of anything if he obviously didn't believe in the system? Obviously he did because he chose to give up his, like he said that he liked science and the truth, but he chose to give up the truth in order to follow the government, which means that he sees the government, sees the continuation of the present world order as more important than personal liberty, truth, all that thing. So by that measure, even though he like originally had these ideas, it's safe. Like the whole thing is safest with him because he's given evidence, he's given proof that he's willing to do this. So if he reads this in his spare time, well, he already had these ideas, but he realizes that they they can't go any further than him. And he like his entire life, he's shown that he's not going to go any further than him. I mean, I don't think the world, I don't think the government cares because he's 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 effective. And he was a capable person in the beginning, even with his ideas. So they're like, you can read whatever you want. Just don't, like, start a revolution or something. Well, it's a very good point that all of you are raising. But let me ask you, when we have our levels of control, do the people that do the controlling know what they're trying to keep us from knowing? For example, when President Cheney shot that... 78-year-old man on the on the ranch. Did he know he shot it? Did the other people around him know that he shot the man? I mean, everybody at the top knew. What was the issue? The issue is not whether they should know. It's whether we should know. It's whether everybody else should know. When Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda attacked the United States 9-11, was it really that the Bush administration was totally in the dark about the connection between Iraq and Al-Qaeda? Were they really completely in the dark about it? Or did they know perfectly well that Iraq did not have weapons of mass destruction and that there was no real connection between Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden? That's the real question. Meaning. The people in charge, generally speaking, from the interpretation of Aldous Huxley, know everything. And that's why Mustafa Mond, in the book, had to have read the books. The whole issue is the people that do the controls know everything. It's the, the books are symbolic of knowledge that you are trying to keep away from the society. The books themselves represent all the information that you're withholding. And so Mustafa Mond couldn't play that role in the book if he didn't also read, read the books. Go ahead. I mean, I see what you mean. I, I haven't thought about it like that, but that makes a lot of sense. Because you can't get someone who could... To, uh, it's almost like you can't, someone, can't get someone to control the people who's not among the people, you know? can't get someone who's just not just unborn person or whatever... In fact, if the person had no knowledge of the books or no knowledge of the information, the person might blunder. He wouldn't know what to control. He wouldn't know what to control or she wouldn't know what to control and say, oh, those are just some pieces of paper. Let anyone have them. And then the books would be out again. So the person who does have the information must have that information. You know, there's there's another issue with the Iraq thing that you'd be very interested in. I remember some months before the invasion of Iraq the recent invasion of Iraq, not the first desert storm. I was listening to Terry Gross interview two editors, one for Jane Intelligence magazine and one for Jane Defense magazine. Those are the two premier defense military-related magazines on the planet Earth. They're based in Britain. And those two editors, Jane's Intelligence and Jane's Defense, they know everything. I mean, if there's any connection to anything, they know it. And Terry Gross was interviewing them on public radio in the same interview. And they were very blunt. They were saying, no, we know everything that Iraq has. They do not have weapons of mass destruction. This is before the invasion, and when President Bush was saying all this weapons of mass destruction stuff, they were saying, no, they do not have it. It's not an ambiguous issue. We had people go in there, they ripped out everything. They may have some vestige of maybe some biological stuff, but whatever it is, but they definitely do not have nuclear capabilities and methods of, uh, methods of mass destruction they just simply don't have. We ripped it all out, and they could not, 
and they describe the whole layer of weapons that they do have and couldn't have. And Terry Gross kept on saying, how certain are we at this? And they said, well, we really ripped out everything. We know very well what they have and what they can't have. And then, now, if the editors of Jane's Intelligence and Jane's Defense magazine were able to state with absolute, unamb- with abs- with abs- with absolute uh, uh, no ambiguity at all, do you think that it's credible, and I'm saying this sort of as a devil's advocate point of view, do you think that it's credible to say that the U.S. administration, that the entire U.S. administration didn't know about that? Now, of course, they claim to this day that they were misled and they didn't understand it and the CIA all goofed up, they got to blame somebody. But the reality is, people know things. They really know things. And that the editors of these two magazines, which are the premier intelligence and defense magazines on the planet Earth, were very clear on this. Do you really think it's credible to say that the U.S. administration didn't also know this? There are things that people know that they don't want you to know for a reason. And that's one of the things that Aldous Huxley is talking about. Why do they think they want you to control? Why do you think they want to control this information? Any information. Whether it's how to produce alternative forms of energy before the right people control those alternative forms of energy, or if it's weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, or if it's connections between Al-Qaeda and Iraq, or if it's anything at all. Why do you think they don't want you to know this information? Revolt. You might revolt against government or something. Revolt. That's an interesting concept. That's an extreme concept. It's an extreme concept, though. Yes. But, I mean, we're talking about extreme problems. Okay. Well, what's something less extreme than revolt, then? If Adol says that's extreme, let's let's go with that for a little bit. Why would they not want you to know it in the absence of revolt? Let's say revolt wasn't what they were really worried about. What would they not want you to know? Just think about, like... Uh, lost, res- lost respect. I mean, one of the one of the biggest issues I know in the last or in the first in when the current George Bush ran for president was you know that Bill Clinton had you know made the office a less respected position, and I think you know that that same thing parallels with you know if the right people aren't in power and they don't want us to find out you know the, if the right people don't control I'm sorry the new technology and they don't want us to find out about it. Yeah, and we did find out it would, we'd lose respect for those people. We'd lose respect for the government in the same way that people lost respect for the position of the president. We would lose respect for the government for withholding from us information that... Now, Jason, I'm going to push on this a little bit. What is this whole issue of respect? What is respect for? What is the purpose of respect? Why do government leaders want you to have respect? So that, that you take what they say at face value. And what does that mean? It means that you don't think about it. That you don't think. And that means that they have... Control. They have control. The more you respect them, the more you do not challenge them. Right. Kelsey, you were going to say something. Oh, no, I was just going to say, like, in the book or whatever, the reason why they, like, withheld so many things like the books is because the more they read and the more they experience, the more they begin to think. And then, like, that goes along the line, how then they get to, like voice out against their government and challenge them and then they lose control and just kind of a down and then you'd have a decay of that society the disruption of order the disruption of order you see that's what psychohistory was all talking about they were able it was able to predict the disruption of order galactic order well here they have a perfectly ordered world a brave new world that's perfectly ordered and it's the disruption of that whether it's the disruption of the energy supplies because of the threat of the Carter Energy Program that was put in the 1970s, or if it was the disruption of world economic order because of a terrorist nuclear event that might happen at some point in the future, people that control things don't want disorder. Disorder is a great fear among people who control things. Now, you know, those people who control things are no different genetically than you or I. So is it a genetic problem? that people, once they get in control, they act like a, a gorilla on a pile of bananas and just try to fight off everybody else from getting to it? It's human instinct. It's human instinct. Yeah, it's like, like, like if we survive. get power, then we want to hold on to it at all costs as well. That's a question. If Otto gets power, will he act yeah. like... I already have people, so yeah. Like all these other people. If, Kelsey, if you get power, will you act like all these people? 
I mean, what's the difference between you and Cheney? Well, uh, you can't say that you're a better person or he's a better person. You're a person. He's a person. Why is he acting this way? Because he's evil. No, you can't just say because he's evil because it happens yeah. everywhere else in the world. Well, yeah. There's always the issue of control. Well, I mean, there's, a, there's an adage, ultimate power corrupts. Or absolute power corrupts absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that I think that anyone can say, you know, when I'm not, you know, when you're not in power, in a position of power, you can say, well, you know, of course, I wouldn't become that person. Yes, I'd want to maintain my power, but I wouldn't become that person who would resort to like, you know, back doors and smoke filled rooms. But I think that at the same time, you can never know until you're in power. I mean, you can't say, you know, I would never be that way because when you're in power, you might be that. You way. might be that way. Actually, to be quite honest, one of my uh, very close friends who's 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 died recently of uh, multiple sclerosis. Actually, he died a few years back. Um, uh, Michael Duvall. He was one of Dick Cheney's uh, and and Donald Rumsfeld's closest friends, and he worked in the administrations of the Ford and the Nixon administrations. And Mike was just unbelievably good. As a soul, he was just unbelievably good. He was one of the best people I've ever known. Yet he was like the closest friends to Dick Cheney and, and Donald Rumsfeld. And I'm sort of saying, here you have these people really trying to control things, manipulate things, keep things from information, keep information from the people. And they were the closest friends to to Mike. And I'm sort of saying, how does that work? And then I used to have discussions about politics with, with Mike. And he used to find the same faults with Democratic administration. He used to find the same faults with the Clintons. That, you know, he used to find that... He used to point out things that that was troublesome there. And the real question is, what happens when people get in power? That there's a need for control, this idea of control in some fashion, in different ways, but in some fashion. Let me bring up something. What was What is Aldous Huxley? And this really directly connects us to what we've been talking about throughout. Why did this brave new world come about? What was the reason why all of this control got instituted? This genetic control that people should know their place. Where did what was the historical reasons for why it came about? What did they explain? Remember, they explained it eventually. What happened that got things so to a point where this whole system of control was instituted? I don't actually remember. I remember talking about the old world. What's that? So I remember. But they were talking about the old world and like what it used to be like. And what happened? And then <laughs> I can't remember exactly what happened. Do you remember, Rachel? Do you remember? No. I see. I don't remember what. what I know they talked about it. But remember the wars? The wars? The wars? The, like, nine-year war or something? The wars. They tore apart everything. The people were fighting and fighting and and one of the huge goals was when the period of chaos occurred. Chaos, the disruption of order, the disruption of the market system, the disruption of everything, was social stability. They wanted everybody to sit still, be in their place. And then this whole hierarchy of the alphas, the betas, and so on, all the way down to the epsilons. But nothing changed. Well, the control changed, the level well, of control. Well, the thing is, up. but I mean, fundamentally, everyone in a war is fighting for control. And then... But you have chaos, disruption of markets. Right, but it's it's all a giant conflict for control of that. Yes. And then here, all they did was institutionalize that control. They got tired of the wars, and they said, heck, let's not have any more wars. Let's just level everything out. We'll take control, because we had it at the end of the war, and we'll institutionalize our control system. Well, they had a, a level of control that became so pervasive, however, that war became impossible. Now, what happened to us immediately after... Nine one one. Increased control. We ratcheted up control. control. We the Patriot Act. We were kind of brainwashed from everything. A lot of propaganda extent. came out. The whole thing. There was the issue of control. The whole Patriot Act, but nine one one surveillance over over American citizens. All types of things happened. And what you can really say is that this oppression and regimentation is specifically designed to be opposite the expression of individuality because individuality allows for the lack of control and you can have lack of control only up to some point but 
if you have lack of control to the point where individuality allows for random events of terror, such as 911 or a nuclear weapon, then the infrastructure, the people that control, do they really have any option other than, well, we can't allow all of this individuality, all of this individual freedoms to occur because we don't know where the terrorist cells would be located. So just like the bull in the china shop, since they can't target the individual terrorist groups without suppressing the freedoms of the entire society, would they then opt for the suppression of the freedoms of the entire society? Meaning if the Patriot Act was a consequence of 911, what would be the consequence of a nuclear terrorist event or something worse than 911? Would they allow individual freedoms if those freedoms threatened if those if the expression of those freedoms could allow terrorists to operate go ahead they would have like they would cut it down so it's even less than this now well the two thing is at some point you're going to run up against I, I mean I'm going to say this and you're going to say oh no but like the, you're going to run up against the ACLU but not even like that would be a wall against it but the ACLU has enough the American Civil Liberties Union they're a lobby for civil liberties and if the ACLU while they may not be strong enough to fight it they could publicize enough about it to the point where it would I'm not saying saying it's a match for the government I'm saying that the ACLU has enough funding to publicize what was going on to the extent that people around the country would take issue with it by the same issue with, like they have the money maybe to do that if the like oil producers with their immense resources the government with their immense resources didn't decide to neutralize them first it wouldn't it would be the work of a year of tops for them to get, like infiltrate people in to cut off ACO news communications and funding channels and so that would make them a non-existent threat even better to get their people in on top of the ACO so that way the ACLU like, would support this new thing saying, while we as the ACLU are pro-civil liberties, they have come to a point now that the civil liberties are interfering with the safety of our people and that just, the safety always comes first. And if they said that, do you think anybody in the country would stand up to that? They'd have, they said, you know what they're talking about. So yeah, well, and they go on with everyday lives. Well, another good thing to ask is what is the response of the populace when these terrorist events happen? What was the response of the populace when 911 happened? Now, 911 is distant for us, and people are starting to question do we really want all of this government surveillance of phone calls and everything else? People looking into library records and all types of things. Do we really want all of that? Given the fact that 9/11 is so distant from us, well, I mean, the thing like like right after 9/11, I mean, exactly. we just sort of like stuck our arms out and said, "Here, you know, shackle us." Exactly. But I mean, I like to think, though, it probably isn't true that if someone were to try to take away more than that, that we would have a problem with it. But then, before 9/11, I probably would have said that. You know, I, I would hope that if something like the Patriot Act, happen, Patriot Act happened, we would have, like, not done that. So... What, is the, what was the response of the public afterwards? Did they really like the Patriot Act? They really said, do whatever you want to civil liberties. Just don't have any more 911s happen. If there's a nuclear event, what would the public say? And then, would the populace be able to really defend themselves? Now, if you look at the surveillance, the surveillance of, yeah. of individuals, phone calls, if you look at population surveys the general public is not really upset with President Bush about this. They're still saying, no, if he's saying they can find some terrorists by listening to zillions of people's phone calls, it's all right. There's still a majority of the people that are willing to go along with that. Well, I mean, as George Bush once wisely said, fool me once, shame on me or you, fool me twice, shame on, and then he got confused. But, um, (laughs) uh, But, I mean... It's basically the same thing. I, I kind of think that it's one of those things where you like you prime people for it. With the Patriot Act, you kind of said, this is what can happen. The government can start taking away your civil liberties if you, if you, know, if you reach out your arms and say, you know, here, chain me. And I, I think, or I would hope, 
that people would at least realize that before they are going to allow the government to do something like that again, that they would at least carefully review what that entails. Because the Patriot Act, they just kind of said, but here, carte blanche, do it. And let's bring in Isaac Asimov. What would Isaac Asimov say to this from the perspective of psychohistory? You're talking about the... You know what you're sounding like? You're, gen- you're sounding like General Rios. The guy who said, I can control things, I hope things will... What was that? Go ahead, Otto. Psychohistory would say that this increasing levels of control by people in power is inevitable. It's going to happen. You mean that's what Asimov would say? Well, the way it works is that people in power want to stay in power. Like, that's just a human trend. And so in order to do that, like, as more and more of the populace gets educated, some level of education, it means that they're able to think through things. They're able to understand, like, the figures, the world events better. So in order to counter this increased intuitiveness by the population, you're going to have to have increased levels of control on what the population know, how the information they receive. Okay, so now... It's going to keep coming now, up. The question I'm going to raise, though, is that... That's a great point. The question that I'm going to raise is, is the populace going to fight this control? Well, if you think about it... Well, I... I, 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 let, let, oh, no, I was just going to say that as long as the government continues to output the word terrorist... That the government, the people are just going to let them it's go scary. ahead and control. The word terror scares people. They're going to listen to whoever's talking about it, no matter if it's a good or a bad idea. That's what the government does. They try to make a connection with something like, oh, if you don't let us have control, then your children are going to be in danger. Yeah, they try to scare. And they, and you made that connection anywhere. You're like, oh, if you don't eat broccoli, your house is going to blow up. Well, that makes absolutely no sense. That'll never happen. But people will get scared. I mean, yeah. to a greater degree. Yeah. Yeah, but like, so you know, I mean, use that kind of thing for their children. That if you don't eat broccoli, then something bad will happen. Exactly. So the government is like almost like our parents are like, just trust us. We, we know what we're doing. But, people are scared. Yeah. They're gonna just okay. Go, Jason. Go but you're like, I think I think that you can look at that trend, the, the trend of increased control of government, and say, you know, psychohistorically that would continue. But I think at the same time, you have to look at the trend of the populace. And over time, <coughs> Americans have become completely independent. We want what's ours, not not independent of government. I mean, we want what's ours. We'll sue you for it. We're a litigation happy society. We'll sue you for what we think is ours. Americans have, like the suing. If you look at it, it's become all the trivial matters, but the big like important things. Americans have they don't look at so much. Like they're willing to. The governments have been getting. The American government is probably the most like in the democratic world. It's probably the most powerful, most pervasive controlling government there is because it, like the American people have become so focused on these little things like this guy scratched my car I'm going to sue him forget that like everything else going on around forget that it's like it's just a minuscule thing but people get so well, well right people Wait, have like personal no, tunnel no, we're running out of time so let me let me just enter a new element here let me get back to what Asimov would say with psychohistory that really blends in well with Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. I think Isamov would say, from the perspective of Harry Seldon, from the perspective of Harry Seldon, is that you cannot predict what the individuals would want and say, sort of the way you're talking about. I think he would say that these are statistical things only that you can predict in large numbers. And that one of the things you can predict, as evidenced by what happened in the, to the American public after 9-1-1, is we were willing to, as you called, be shackled. We were willing to have the Patriot Act. All sorts of control issues were thrown into that Patriot Act, from looking at library records, all sorts of things that otherwise would not have been allowed. The public wouldn't have stood for that. If there is a terrorist nuclear event, then, according to Asimov, what you're likely to see is that the public would be willing to go along with a tremendous ratcheting up of the control of society. Now, in the Brave New World, what happened before this was the world came apart. The whole, all of Europe and everywhere became basically like Kosovo when they were being, you know, during the during this ethnic cleansing and it, the whole place was just being destroyed. It wasn't that these people came in and controlled this new world and created this regimented society. The people wanted it. They allowed it to happen. They encouraged it. They asked to be shackled. 
in order to stop this control and in order to stop the day the, the disorder to stop the the chaos and so when you have people for example that were finally free linda the mother of john savage was finally free in the west or out in the you know in the, in the territories what did she want to do when she finally got back to civilization just drug herself so, she, so much she overdosed and so much she said let me get back to civilization which was to use the drugs use to control she wanted to be controlled she didn't like the freedom matrix yeah very like much matrix. like the matrix people would rather be controlled than you mean that one guy who rather just live in bliss than care That's about right. the freedom well and the thing is I mean I think that part of that is that it, I mean, it's, indo- it's indoctrinal. I mean, these people, you know, they spent their whole lives being told that. And I think, I mean, do you remember how hard it was for them to convince Neo he didn't want to be in there? Exactly, because right? he said some people are not be some people are not ready to be awakened, awakened. because they just can't handle. They, they just can't handle it because they've been indoctrinated their whole lives. Yeah. And I think that, that, I mean, that speaks to this. You know, that that once you're indoctrinated, okay. I mean, Linda was indoctrinated and she came back, but she couldn't do anything else. Yeah, we're, uh, time's up. What we're going to do now? We're starting to. We're starting to get into science fiction the way it's supposed to be getting into, the real deep understanding of it. Remember, when you write your stuff, you don't have to write anything right now. You write it over the weekend, and we'll be talking more about, actually, you're going to start it over the weekend, but it doesn't have to be handed in until next Thursday. We're going to start with Ursula Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness on Thursday. So, tonight and Wednesday, start getting through so you're at least halfway through the book by the time Thursday goes. Left Hand of Darkness, Ursula Le Guin. We're now starting to think about what is the real science fiction component that's social in these things. And there's tremendous, tremendous lessons to be gotten from it. By the way, the, the lessons that you're getting from it are very unusual. Most people don't get these lessons in traditional political science classes. So the gift that you get from this class is when you leave here, you'll be able to think out of the box when you go to other political science classes that will really give you that extra edge that extra edge in your political analyses. So, okay, I will see you all on Thursday. Left Hand of Darkness, Ursula Le Guin. Get halfway through it. Super.